This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 652. And the quote of the day is, sustaining success is as difficult as achieving it. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 652, and I am pumped about this one. We got the legend himself, Mr. Sean Pelton, and I don't even know where to start with with Sean's career. I mean, he's played with everyone. He's played with Sheryl Crow and Billy Joel and Van Morrison and Elton John, and just those names alone would be a, an amazing resume, and there's so many more you could add to that. Pink, Shakira, Kelly Clarkson... Five for Fighting, Citizen Cope, Modest Yahoo, David Byrne, Edie Burkell, Joan, Joan Osborne, Hall and Oates. I mean, like it just goes on and on and on. Not to mention, he's been the house drummer for Saturday Night Live for 30 years. The man has a resume that is, it just blows my mind every time I look at it and I think about all of the people he's played with, all the records that he's played with. And he was so awesome to come on and share his wisdom, share his insights. And it's always great when you finally get to chat with someone that you've wanted to talk to for such a long time. And not only are they amazing at what they do, but they're an amazing human being. And Sean is one of those people. So I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it with Mr. Sean Pelton. Sean Pelton, how are you, buddy? Ah, man, great to be here. And, uh, Really appreciate you having me. You've got so many great interviews that you've done, and it's what an incredible resource for everybody to have uh, everybody talking. And man, so anyway, thanks for everything you're doing. You know, very very cool. Thank you, thank you for for being part of it. And I, I, I don't even know where to start with this conversation because uh, you know I've I've known about your career you know pretty much my whole life. Have uh, have followed all the things that you've done. And then it really, it really came into focus when you sent me, when we were talking back and forth via email and you were like, oh, here's just a couple things uh, that you may want to check out before this. And it's like you playing with James Brown and Pavarotti and then you playing with Justin Timberlake and then you playing with Kanye West and then you doing double drum stuff with Gat. I mean, those four things, just those four things, if they were on my resume, my career, I would be 1000% satisfied with my career. And that is not even scratching the surface of the stuff that you've done over the years. And looking back to, to when you start, I mean, you hit the scene in the eighties in, in New York city, but before that in Kansas city, like if you think back to that time, were, did you ever think that this career was going to, to pan out the way that it did? No, man, I tell you, I feel so fortunate. Um, uh, you know, I kind of grew up in a small town that 50 miles from Kansas city, this place called Warrensburg and uh, Warrensburg, Missouri. But what was kind of lucky about it was it was a small college town and my mother taught there at the, at the little college. And uh, so they sort of had a, you know, a music program there and all that. And then at that time, sort of in the late seventies, you know, if you, when you were coming up in, in school, you know, music was a requirement and all that. So there was opportunities that you, if you were interested in hungry, you know, you could like, 
really kind of get into it and they had the little band contest and then you know there were camps like i was able to go to the stan kenton camps a couple of years mm-hmm. and then the the jb abersall thing was around back then uh, got to go to berkeley uh summer program uh for high school students when i was a junior which was like a huge you know eye-opener as far as like leaving you know a cornfield in the middle of missouri mm-hmm. and then being in the middle of boston you know which was just amazing and um I mean, one one theme that I kind of think was really helpful as far as being able to survive later was that I started working at a really young age. Like I was playing gigs by the time I was like 14 or 15 in bands around Missouri. And um, so that kind of perspective of of being really hungry to learn and any chance I could get to, you know, take lessons from somebody or something like that, but combined with actually sort of working from an early age. And uh, anyway, that that's ended up being really helpful, I think, from a survival standpoint, as far as uh, having a kind of a, you know, a wide stylistic thing that I've had to deal with mm-hmm. from the beginning, kind of from a work standpoint. What, you know? So when you start, you said you started gigging when you were 13, 14 years old, what were you, what kind of stuff were you playing then or, or leading up to that? Like, what were you listening to? What, cause I mean, you have such, you've, you've such a wide variety of styles that you play and play well. Uh, but what were you listening to when you were, when you were younger? Like what influenced all of that for you? Well, it's wild. You know, I, I had my stuff in the basement. I'd play along with records. And so, uh, you know, the, the Beatles were a theme, but then also, you know, if you were, if you were interested in music, like back then, it sort of like tilted you into the jazz thing and being in, you know, jazz band at school and stuff like that. So, you know, I also had Charlie Parker records and stuff like that. And then being around Kansas City, there was such a huge jazz tradition. And they were like, you know, there'd be jam sessions and things. I remember there was this trumpet player, Carmel Jones, who had come back from living in Europe and he was back in, in Kansas City and he would have jam sessions. And then you know, being exposed to that kind of thing and sitting in around Kansas City was kind of a thrill. So there was like this jazz sort of path that like if you were interested in drums and going to school and then like sort of the FM rock radio at the time, you know, like Zeppelin and then, you know, Grand Funk Railroad, and you know, Bad Company and all the stuff that would have been on the FM playlist at that time. But then the gigging thing was sort of like running around VFW halls and playing you know, country music and rock music and whatever the people in Missouri were into at the VFW halls, you know? So it it was this wild kind of range of, uh, and that sort of played out. Like I ended up going to uh, Indiana university and what was the trip about that was uh, at the time I was a jazz major there, but there wasn't an applied drum set teacher there. And, uh, but Kenny Aronoff was there and um, he was like about 10 years older than I was, but he was still in town. And this is right when he started uh, hidden with uh, Mellencamp and having some of those great records and, uh, you know, MTV was exploding. So that was a huge influence to be like sort of, you know, in this jazz program, but then, you know, chasing Kenny around for lessons and watching him play and helping him set up his shit every time I could, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and then, you know, two summers when I was there, I got to go away and study with Alan Dawson. Oh, so, wow. And then on top of that, I was like working all through college in a kind of a uh, an R&B kind of dance band thing that played all up and down like Louisville to um, Gary, Indiana and Indianapolis and all that. So I was always, I was also 
it was just wild. There were so many balls in the air with a wide range of stuff. And and in the level of musicianship, there was a lucky time we were there. Like um, like that band that I was telling you about had Crystal Tallaferro with mm-hmm. her, who went on to like play with everybody. She plays percussion, does all the stuff with Billy Joel now, but she's toured with, I mean, everybody, like the Bee Gees, Joe Cocker, Mellencamp, on and on and on. And then she's like the female version of you. (laughs) Oh no, but she, she's incredible. But the fact that I was in a band with like that level of musicianship that went on to sort of do stuff. And then when she like left with Mellencamp, Everett Bradley came in and he's like, you know, done Springsteen. He's with Bon Jovi now. And he's had like an incredible career, uh, for himself. So, you know, uh, when I was there, I was trying to think like Jim Beard was there, this pianist with Steely Mm -hmm. Dan. And then Bob, Bob Hurst was there. who's like, amazing jazz basses that's played with with everybody and then chris Bodie was there and then anyway this level of players that were there at that time uh all of this sort of there was so much going on and, and the stylistic range was so broad you know mm-hmm. and i feel like that was a really a lucky thing to to be around a scene like that you know yeah i mean when when you're mentioning all of these things the first thing that i think about is and i and i don't mean this to sound you know sound morbid or or sound like I'm uh you know negative over here but it just doesn't seem like those same opportunities are as prevalent as they were then do you do you feel the same way do you think it's harder for someone who's 13 14 15 16 years old to be you know to play 3 4 5 nights a week in different bands and and different styles and have all of these different programs and available gigs that are out there Man, yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I, I, I mean, the opportunities that are around today, uh, you know, I think they're there. Maybe it's different, but you know, like the whole world of YouTube and what that's opened mm-hmm. up, and for people to sort of be able to build a career within the umbrella of that thing, man, it's pretty amazing to be able to see all these incredible drummers that you know are out there doing it in that way, and then the, like the the church thing that's happening and all the opportunities for, you know, that whole gospel chops thing that, that came about, you know, from that tradition. Mm -hmm. And then, um, so, you know, and there's a lot of self-starting going on where people just make scenes happen. Like, you know, even living here in New York, like you can go down to Washington square park and man, there's like blazing drummers that will set up their kit and play and cats be rapping while they're playing or dance. Like, you know, there's can be a whole scene that's happening, you know, on the streets too, mm-hmm. like here. So, so I don't know. It's a complicated question. I think it's probably definitely different, but man, people, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get and all that. And there's a lot of people that can make an opportunity happen, you know, um, right? you know, cause it's kind of the American dream and USA and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, in saying that, I, w- I would say if someone was trying to come to New York and be, a professional musician i mean it is brutally hard to navigate the reality of being a self-employed freelance musician right in new york city yeah yeah and i think that just from from my experience of of being in new york and then from you know from where i started to where i am now like it's always been difficult to be a professional musician whether it's 1930s 40s 50 it doesn't matter uh but to me it seems it seems increasingly so that those sort of those mid-level gigs where you could be in sort of a you could be in a band that maybe goes and plays smaller clubs across the country or even even if you're in a in a bar band that's playing you know a decent amount of like 
bigger bars and things like that. I felt like even 15 years ago, you could sustain yourself with those sorts of gigs. And it seems like a lot of those have, have evaporated. Do you feel the same way? Do you feel like it's only, it's sort of like the economics in the world where there's not really a middle class anymore, right? You're either broke or you got a ton of money and there's not really a middle class anymore, unfortunately. Um, do you feel like there's less and less middle class musicians out there? Oh man, it's, it's a good question. And you know, it's wild. Like one thing that sort of sprung up, um, before the pandemic hit was this idea of like the house concert circuit and this, mm -hmm. you know, like musicians and bands I saw were sort of, they jump in a van and then somehow they had like a whole tour book that was kind of like this circuit of, of small or, or like houses or living, I mean, basement concerts. Like I, I, I saw punk bands like doing, you know, a tour of like people's basements and stuff. And so it's interesting, like, you know, that because you're right all through time surviving as a musician has been like really challenging always you know right and um but also i think where there's a will there's a way and like you know man i was going to be a musician i knew it in every cell of my body whether i was going to be completely broke and burnt out or you know have good fortune and uh, but man i've been on the you know I've been sleeping on the floor with five other cats eating tuna fish out of a can with macaroni and cheese in a box. And I know what that's like. And, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's a bitch, you know, but man, I love music and it was everything to me. And I was all in no matter what was going to happen, but mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that was easy. I mean, like before I got, I got SNL when I was like 29 and I remember like that period, you know, I'd come out here with an artist that had a record deal. Uh, he ended up getting dropped. We got picked up by Electra. Then that record never came out. And I started like freelancing and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and before that sort of led to this, the opportunity of, of getting the audition for the SNL thing. I mean, it was a bitch, man. Like, you know, 50, $60 blues gigs coming back from Jersey through the tunnel and the tunnel right. cost about $8, $8 to get in. Well, you know, cause you lived out here. So yeah. you, deal. And, you know, and, all, and then alternate side of the street at parking, you'd show up at three thirty in the morning. You'd unload your drums. I mean, this this was the early nineties, and they were selling crack. They'd sell. It was on. Um, I was down in the, in the east East Village, and they're selling crack out of, out of the doorway. But they didn't really want to mess with you because that would draw attention to what they were doing. So you right. know, it wasn't like. And, you know, taking the the drums up three flights of stairs and keeping the other part of the kit locked up while you ran up the floor tom and the snare you know it was like that's brutal man it was a bitch yeah, yeah. i mean having to get up at, at 8 30 in the morning to park the car to, the to other move side the car the to the other side of the street yeah yeah and then and then you had to move it back and find a place like two hours later so like you couldn't really get like eight hours of sleep in and you know people would sneak in and like take a dump in the foyer of the apartment I'm not my apartment, but in the, you know, in the apartment building we lived right, in, because it right. was like this shit that was going on. It was like a low rent part of town and my car got stolen, you know, and then the, the license plates from the car, like they chopped the, they chopped the truck up for parts and then they took the license plates and put it on another car. And then like, we're getting tickets with that. And I had to go prove that the truck Damn. was stolen. I mean, I could, <laughs> I could kind of go on and on, but like, you know, New York is, is it's a brutal, it's brutal, but like it also, well, I, you know, think I think it's I think it's important that you mention that though, because I'm sure that people are like, "Oh man, Sean got to New York and just like hit the ground running and and got the SNL gig and got this and that and blah blah blah." And it's like, yeah, but 
there was a lot of struggle that went on before that happened and and we don't see the we don't see the hard work that goes into it you just see the result and you got to remember man like people were like your story like you were grinding for a while before this stuff happened it wasn't like you just arrived and they're like oh sean's here let me just start handing out gigs (laughs) right right no it's it's uh yeah and you know that saying like the harder you work the luckier you get you know Mm luckier you get and all that and then you know and there's so many sides to trying to sustain a career in the music business beyond just like playing playing the drums you know like how how you deal with people and the work situations and handle there's so many things going on beyond just the playing you know as far as surviving and and sustaining a career past you know two or three or five year ten year run you know like to to have been over at that at that gig for 30 years now you know there's it's a uh, I, I feel so fortunate but i i know there's a lot of moving pieces to 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 trying to survive in the business for you know a long period of time yeah what was what was your approach when you got to new york for how i mean did you have connections there already did you know people there were you already heading like coming into new york once in a while to play so when you got there you had a couple irons in the fire already or were you green and you landed and you didn't know anyone and, and you were like, all right, let's just make it work. Yeah. Well, the, the lucky thing was that I, I did come to New York or the East coast, let's say with a gig. And that's cause you know, I, I'd been hanging out with Kenny and studying and trying to learn from him so much. And he was really positive and giving and an incredible influence on so many different levels. And then, uh, at Mellencamp Studio, there was this artist, John Eddy, who was sort of kind of like Springsteen-esque artist on Columbia at the time. And uh, he made his second record there in Bloomington at Cougar Studio. And so this would have been mm-hmm. like 1980, 88. And uh, so when the record was done, obviously Kenny wasn't going to leave, you know, Mellencamp's thing to go with like a, a new artist. So that's how I got the gig with uh, this this guy, John Eddy. And I moved out to Jersey. And then it was sort of like... Uh, playing up and down the east coast you know like the stone pony and that whole circuit up and down you know yeah uh, and then when that fell apart with the the label and everybody getting dropped you know it started freelancing and uh, i was in Southside johnny for a, a bit and that asbury jukes and then like joan osborne there were a lot of gigs happening that you you know i was lucky enough this band the fair lanes a lot of great drummers played with uh, it was kind of a jersey-based blues band Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of freelance stuff happening, like on Bleecker Street, and a lot of singer songwriters and and gigs that you could. But you know, it was it was a lot of hustling and and work and um, rehearsals. And if you were playing on Bleecker Street, you know, if you had one gig one night, and, and then the very next night something with another artist, you know, it really did sort of it was kind of boots on the ground training for dealing with songs and and stuff. Um, that kind of you know because i didn't really move to new york to, to play like let's say with singer songwriters but then it ended up as a survival standpoint that that a lot of work kind of came that way mm-hmm. well, what so, was your uh, what was your it, idea of who you were going to play with or what style well, you I were going to play coming to new york i guess i thought you know it's coming from that thing that was a little bit more rocking and uh hard hitting and then this the singer songwriter thing got into you know, started leading into fitting in with 
people with acoustic guitars and like, you know, the MTV unplugged thing that was starting to happen where like, you know, the idea of blastics and, uh, yeah. and brushes and, and, you know, someone like uh, Russ Kunkel, you know, fire and rain, those kind of classic tracks. And, you know, there's a whole nother art to understanding that kind of thing. And, and, um, so that sort of led to, I got a lucky break where I was, uh, in 96 or 97, there was a, a record, Sean Colvin's few small, spare, few small repairs that, um, it wasn't, it was song of the year and then also record of the year. So it won a couple Grammys and, um, you know, and then, so that sort of led to playing with, uh, once you sort of have some success within a certain idiom, you know, you get calls for that kind of thing mm-hmm. so, sort of. And then, so that led to that. And, but you know, in the meantime, like there was a lot of a wide range again, like, uh, you know, the SNL band, we did a live record with Buddy Guy. Uh, I ended up on a Brecker Brothers track. Um, you know, so this whole wide range of, of styles is sort of a thing that, again, it really helped me survive, I think, you know, mm-hmm. um, being able to to survive in a lot of different styles, you know. And it's, from from what I'm hearing, too, it's obviously you are playing with as many people as you possibly can. You're putting yourself out there with any, any style of music, any gig, whatever, whatever it is, you're freelancing here, you're working, you're trying to network, but it really comes down to like, you have to get one, you got to get one gig that you can use as a calling card to start getting you other gigs, right? You're like, all right, I did this thing. And then, so then you become the guy who did that thing. That'll get you into other that'll get you into other situations. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think that does happen a lot, you know, um, where you get known for a certain thing or if you've had success with a certain sound that can lead to people, you know, it's human nature to sort of stereotype um, all sorts of things, you know? And so with musicians, it's a similar thing. Like, you know, and what's interesting is when you see a musician maybe have success or a hit, like you're saying, uh, become associated with a certain style that was maybe it was a fluke that like it's actually not the the main thing they kind of do or or love you know mm-hmm. and um, so that's interesting about I I think what you're leaning into about how people have a tendency to stereotype musicians as to what they do and that's less like someone like Steve Gadd that's so fascinating that I love is that here's a guy that you know he he goes out on tours with James Taylor, but he also shows up at the blue note with Chick Corea, you know, <laughs> right. <and he's> re- <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just so, so awesome. And then also that he has an identifiable sound within both or all these different planets of music, right. you know? Right. Um, and I, but and I, I was thinking so that, more like, does it make sense as a, as a musician to get success in with one, you know, try to try to put yourself out there as much as possible so that you can land this one successful thing that you can then use as a calling card to get out there to other things. I mean like, Oh yeah, I played on this record. And it's like, Oh, if you played on that record, then you're obviously good enough to do these other things or something and just get one of those things on your resume that, you know, to, to use as a calling card to get other gigs. Yeah, I think that's a good point. But, you know, like before, like say even that you're recording and you're just working or trying to survive or trying to get to the point of that happening, you know, I wonder if like this, what you were saying about saying yes to everything, like I think there could be something good to that. Like, you know, by saying yes to the blues gig in Jersey and turning around and saying yes to the coffee gig with someone and turning around saying yes to playing percussion for a dance class in midtown and then saying yes for like going out to queens and playing like a wedding and you know like 
trying to navigate and learn from all that, I mean, you've got to stay positive through it. I remember there was a guy that I came up with and he said, you know, I'm not going to do any more weddings. I, this doesn't lead anywhere. And, and I'm only going to do original gigs. I thought, oh man, that's so, that, that kind of made sense and was interesting. But then what was trippy is like, you know, if you're cool with putting on a tuxedo and going doing a club date and making the bread, and you know playing celebrate good times you know for the 500th time like that four on the floor kind of beat is also what ended up being like a signature sound for like the adele record like a lot of those fields were four on the floor so if you can stay positive through all these different work situations you know and it's not easy but it's a real it's a real heavy survival skill like i remember Maybe Rick Murata said in an interview that, you know, if you're freelancing, you end up kissing a lot of frogs, you know, and he was talking about how great like the Steely Dan thing was. Mm-hmm. And and it's true, like if you're going to try to survive by just playing drums as a freelance musician, man, you've got to really have the temperament for dealing with a ton of shit that's going to end up on your lap, you know? Yeah. Um, so. It's wild. So I, I think being known for one thing is really cool. But I think also what's cool is like, hey, we can, this guy has a great feel. He's a great musician. He'll do his homework. He'll show up on time. Like some of that stuff transcends whether or not you're thinking about we need this guy to, to play a heavy blues feel or we need somebody that can play brushes on a coffee shop gig. Like if you can cover both things and be super professional with your shit and show up on time and take care of business, be a great hang, have a great feel. You know, mm-hmm. play with dynamics, understand how to play a room volume-wise. You know that that kind of transcends this idea. Like I'm only going to fo- focus on doing this one style. You know? Right, right. And that can be and that can be a lane too that that you can go uh, because you know, like one argument could be the jack of all trades versus master of none kind of concept. But you know, leaning back into someone like Steve, he's someone who is just so musical on so many incredible levels in such a wide range. And it seems like that that allows him to work in so many different contexts, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to I'm only going to be a punk, punk drummer or only a jazz cat or something like right. that, you know. Well, the the interesting thing with when I when I look back and I, I always marvel at guys like you and Kenny Arnoff and Steve Gadd and Steve Jordan and and Rick Morata and all these guys that all of you can play so many different styles. You can play it well and and not just like pl- you can you can play it, you know, at a, at someone's house or something like that. But I mean, you can play it on a, on a high level. Was, was that out of necessity? Did are you guys, were you guys learning all these styles because there was multiple gigs with multiple styles that you would need to play? Yeah. Like, you know, that, that thing about, even if you go back to, like I was saying, when growing up, you know, in, in say middle America in the late seventies and, all of a sudden you're let's say at a stan kenton big band camp and if you're into music you know it sort of leads down the jazz band path but then if you're also in the basement with your friends playing zeppelin tunes and you know um black sabbath's paranoid record that sort of like leans to or you know if you loved kiss let's say and then but you also went to kansas city and you were like you know trying to sit in with the jazz jams that were happening and all of a sudden it's like you know charlie parker tunes are happening and um so if you're hungry and if you love music, um, you know, it's it's wild. Like it, it took me into just a lot of different streams. And I think that mixture of like, like I said, if you were 
hungry with drums and you were in school in the late 70s, you sort of ended up being in the jazz bands and that sort of led down a jazz path. But then if you also were hanging out, working in, in bands, that might meant you were playing bad company songs, you know. And then, so it's interesting, like I think how hungry you are to, to just be out there doing it, no matter what the context is. Right. Helps with all that, you know. Yeah. You know, I I would I was just thinking about this because I was talking to someone about this yesterday, uh, just about how jazz influences all of the other stuff that you play. The interesting thing to me is all of you guys have great feel, you know, going like you and talking about Kenny and talking about Steve Gadd and Steve Jordan and at like at Rick and, and everyone. And it's like, yeah, all you guys play jazz too. And, and whether it's like you're a hard bebop drummer who is just working in New York every night playing straight ahead, uh, you at least are have that knowledge and have that understanding of jazz and swing and that kind of feel. And I think, I think that lends itself to, you know, all of your grooves that just feel so much better because you're, you can think about things contextually uh, swinging and, and, you know, you're, you're using that as a, as a reference point. Yeah. I, I do think that's a, that can be a theme, you know, all, all the way to someone like Charlie Watts and, and these guys that were huge fans of the jazz. Um, you know, man, it's such an incredible legacy of musicians and, you know, the, the greats within the, the jazz canon of, of drumming. I mean, Jesus Christ, it's such an inspiration, you know? Uh, yeah. And, so yeah, I do think that's the. It is funny. I did I did read an interview once where Korchmar, Danny Korchmar, is a great, great, great musician, and I think he was talking about a drummer, and he said, you know, he goes, I actually appreciated the idea that this cat, he he didn't want to be a jazz cat. He was just like, just tripled down on the rock thing, and you know, I kind of dug that, you know, which I thought was interesting, you know, sort of. Yeah. The the wild thing about what we're talking about is there's so many lenses to look through things through, you know, and the, and um, uh, so. I, I do. I love what you're saying. I think the jazz. If someone is sensitive to the tradition of the jazz thing and and being able to play shuffles and swing their ass off, and man, it, it can only help. That's for sure. You know. Yeah. Talk to me about the SNL gig. I mean, you've been doing that for thirty years now, or or, or damn near close to thirty years, right? Um, how did how did that come about? And I'm interested to just know just the ins and outs of that gig. But but how did you land that gig? Yeah, well, so, you know, once that the the artist thing that I was out here with kind of fell apart, we got dry, and I was just freelancing, you know, and going to clubs every night and hanging out and watching other people play and trying to show up and, and be present. And um, the, the I was doing a gig at the Lone Star Roadhouse, which was uh, in Midtown. There, were, there used to be one on 12th Street downtown, and this was in Midtown, and it was a freelance gig. And that's so interesting about New York, you know, is that the freelance community is such a trip. So this gig was, um, the horn section was the uptown horns, which had been out with the stones, you know, and then mm -hmm. um, the bass player was this great bass player, Paula Sola, who was doing the SNL gig at the time. So we had played together a lot, just sort of freelancing in the whole community of, you know, trying to survive in New York, uh, with just putting gigs together. And the next day he got called from G Smith who was running the band and G was like, you know, Matt Chamberlain, he's decided he wants to move on and we need to have some auditions. And, you know, Matt did it for a year and what an incredible musician, Yeah, you know, oh my God. Yeah. And uh, before that, I think Chris Parker had done it and then Steve Ferroni had done it. And then of course, Steve Jordan did it for a while and uh, Buddy Williams. It's, you know, um, so cool how many 
drummers had, had done that gig, you know. It is it is cool. I, it's interesting to me yeah. how the entire late night scene really uh, kind of revolved around up, up these great drummers. Yeah, yeah it's it, wild, that's... yeah. So, well, anyway, well, I was going to just finish this. Long story longer was that uh, that gig, you know, got recommended for the audition. And, uh, man, the audition was a trip. It was down at SIR on 25th Street. And it was just GE and the bass player and a set of drums. And you showed up and GE started playing. And you just had to get down and make it happen. And it wasn't like... Mm. Hey man, okay, we're gonna do a shuffle, or here's this, here's this tune that uh, you know I sent you some tunes. Did you check them out? It was none of that. It was just show up. He's gonna start playing, and and you know, <laughs> he just had to make it happen. And it was cool. I mean, it was. It was I I remember walking out of there going, wow, that that felt like it went really well, you know, because mm -hmm. I had been playing I played a lot of blues gigs, and then stylistically, I think I was sort of in the slot about what G reacted to, which he wanted somebody that that it was kind of uh simple but in your face and strong and big and, and then he wanted a great feel mm -hmm. and then he wanted someone with a range like you know that could play brushes like i think he had one or two charts to just sort of throw in front of you to see that you could read and understand that and so you know having that background of having gone, having gone to school and stuff really helped with the reading side of it but it wasn't like it was north texas state university and like a big band chart was set down at like 300 beats per minute where you were having to like cut figures, you know, that were like mm -hmm. really complicated. So he was more about, you know, and I think, I think he wanted someone that was young and that he would knew would take, take direction, you know, and stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. um, so I walked out of there feeling like, man, that, that felt like it went really great. And so I got the call to do it. And then it was sort of like, you, you weren't hired right away. It was sort of like a three show audition. And then if you could survive the first three shows and, you know, show that you didn't crack under the pressure, because I mean, it is a trip live TV, like yeah. there's not really any do do overs, you know, if you, if you mess it up. So, but then, man, it kept going um, and got the gig. And then uh, Lenny Pickett runs the band now, who's amazing. You know, he was in Tower of Power with Garibaldi and has mm -hmm. played with so many great drummers and uh, he's a great band leader and the way he runs it uh, is incredible. I mean, the musicianship on the on the band is really inspiring. Like the bass players, James Genus, you know, was out with Herbie, and um, a lot of the horn players, like Steve Torre, plays trumpet. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, trombone, and he was out. He would play with Blakey and Ron Blake, the sax oh, guy, wow. played with Roy Haynes, and then Alex Foster, you know, used to hang with D. Jeanette and El so like the stories. Man, heavy, heavy guys. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, and they've all played with great drums. It's kind of a hot seat, you know, in negotiating that and. Uh, you know, I've had to, uh, every, uh, coming up, you know, I've really tried to put some energy into like mentally having my shit together because, you know, like that's a big side of, of surviving, you know, as a right. freelancer is the, the drums are such a trip because if something's not right or if something doesn't feel right or if something seems a little fast or slow, like it all sort of lands on the drummer's lap in a way. And if you have sort of the wherewithal to navigate all that and stay strong and and, um, you know, it's, it's a great survival skill. Um, when I went to, when I was at Indiana university, there was this famous trumpet teacher that would teach lead trumpet players. His name was Bill Adam. And he's kind of, a, he's a legendary teacher, blah, blah, blah. And he would make them all read this book. This book was called cycle cybernetics. And, uh, I remember reading it too, cause I'd heard about everybody reading it cause the pressure of playing lead trumpet was such a huge thing. And you could, you know, crack notes if you didn't have your mental shit together. And so, Right. Anyway, that those kind of tools 
proved to be really helpful as far as like, you know, it's live from New York, it's Saturday Night Live. And you realize like millions of people are tuned in and, you know, there's a foot switch that starts the opening theme to play along to it. <laughs> and, you know, you're kind of responsible for not not dropping the ball at these <laughs> right. moments, you know. Yeah. I mean, that like live, uh, li- I actually, right now I, pr- I'm, I produce a live show. Uh, nowhere near to the scale or magnitude of Saturday Night Live. And I know it's, and I'm not playing on it, I'm producing it. So I'm behind the camera. So like, I'm not messing anything up here. Uh, but, or, you know, if I mess something up, no one's going to see me on camera mess it up. But there, I can't imagine like the first gig or the second gig or the third, especially the first gig, like when you realize, oh my God, there's millions of people watching this. It's live, it's go time. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that you still have that sense of probably not fear because you've been doing it for so long, but those, those sort of butterflies, what's that feeling like when you know that the camera is, is rolling and, and like you said, live from New York is Saturday night. Yeah. Well, you know, it's wild. I, like I was telling you about, I had tried to like have these mental tools of dealing with that. Like I, I, I almost try to channel it as being inspiring and like, you know, taking the energy of it and like using it as a positive. Um, Mm -hmm. Like when you read about athletes and they sort of talk about that, like if they're, you know, and I was, I felt like I was so focused about like with GE, it was all about really staying locked on him and like where, where he felt things and he would start things off and man, you really had to be glued and focus to what he was laying down and fit right. into that. You know, I mean, there'd be times where we were on air and he would just turn around and he'd like sort of like tap his ear, flick his ear and look at, look at me. And that meant, what's that hey, mean? Man. Well, it meant, it meant, here we go, here we go. We're going on air and just listen to me. I'm going to do gotcha. something and you play. <laughs> I thought, and I thought you were saying why you were playing. Like he's, he's hearing something that he didn't like or something. <laughs> No, no, it was more like this idea of like, it wasn't like, hey man, okay, we're going to do a shuffle, it's in G. Like a lot, he wouldn't do, sometimes he would just start playing and it was about falling into the thing and, and going, you know. And I think he gotcha. kind of, he kind of got that from maybe playing with Bob Dylan's thing because Bob, Bob would, is notorious for sort of doing stuff, you know, where you don't exactly know what's coming down the pike, you know. Right. Feel wise right. and stuff, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing to me how many how many musicians that you've played with on Saturday night live, uh, how many styles you've played the longevity of the, of the show. I mean, there's a lot, there's so, if you look back at that catalog, I mean, I, I, my, my guess is that you're someone who continues to look forward and, and doesn't look back a lot. Uh, but do you ever sit back and think about just, just the, the, uh, the catalog of, of what's been done just on Saturday night live, not to mention all the other stuff that you've done. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's pretty mind boggling. Like I said, to grow up in a small town in Missouri and for, you know, to have been able to like record with Ray Charles and Bob Dylan and, and, you know, Springsteen and, and be on some recordings that have, you know, won Grammys and all that stuff, man, it's like, it's like, you know, trying to pinch yourself, like this just can't be real, you know, uh, yeah. it's pretty, pretty mind boggling. And, um, but you know, it's funny, those live things at SNL, like when we do a monologue and then maybe it's Justin Timberlake or, you know, Snoop Dogg comes out and we're playing behind him or that Kanye thing you were talking about. It's trippy, uh, because, uh, because it's live and if they're running around the studio and, and often like there can be lines that are dropped or, you know, there's been times where it's been like 
we've all had to make a split decision about, oh my God, this guy just dropped three beats out of this bar and now we're turned around and are we going to stay, are, are we going to stay with our scene or are we going to adapt to this? You know, like all these kind of right. things that right. can sometimes happen in those situations that are, uh, you know, you definitely have to keep a cool, cool head through the thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There, you had mentioned, you had mentioned earlier about, about during the audition for SNL that, they wanted someone who was sort of bold and in your face, but but had groove and 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 uh, could play these different styles. And one thing that I and one thing I've noticed about your playing is I've noticed how you're you're sort of I'm gonna try to explain this the best way I can, but it it feels like you're you're sort of dropping into the into the drums and you're like and I and I saw you at the the Connecticut drum show years ago. And I think you had your sticks upside down and you had them taped with, and they were like clubs at the end of the sticks. Uh, I don't know if you still, if you're still playing like that or not, but it's always amazed me how you have this sort of like this, this style of really leaning into the drums and like almost like dropping the sticks on the, like you're falling onto the drums with your hands, but then yet you still have this touch and feel and, and, and like fluidity around the kit like how are you managing those those two things at the same time yeah well i love what you you're mentioning about that because like you know sound wise especially when it comes to the rock thing like getting a big sound out of the drums like tony it's funny like when tony williams like started doing the thing in the 70s and like went to the the black dot heads and you know if you see tony from that period on, like almost everything he's doing is sort of single stroke orientated. And it's very like, he grips the sticks towards the, with the back of his hands. It's, I don't know, there's a timpani grip. I don't know if it's this French grip that does that or something, but like, it's very wrist orientated playing. And like, I have a photo of like Art Blakey that I'm staring at right now here in my, in my room that, you know, it's almost like the grip on the sticks is very, it's not like a molar finesse grip, let's say. It's kind of like a, a big, sound and playing into the to the bottom of the to the center of the earth in a way uh, mm-hmm. and trying to get a heavy deep pocket and sound out of the drums and so you know and being with kenny kind of in the 80s coming up and seeing how physical he was that was definitely an influence in that way um mm-hmm. because his whole thing was about trying to project to the back of like a madison square garden or a, a shed tour you know like physically and you know and also that was an era of like you know the snare drum was mixed so damn loud in records like if you li- listen back to like a you know born in the usa right you know like it's like the, the back that snare like, drum is just like <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, it's, it's mixed. There's like out. firecrackers oh, you know, going off, right? And there was a lot of drum machines back then, and the drums were really up front. So it's wild how that physical thing uh, translated from that era, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's a part of kind of how I approach that sometimes. But man, I got to tell you, that can also be like the worst thing you can do. And when I moved to New York, uh, playing smaller rooms and places like you know the Fifty Five Bar or the Bitter End or something like that that kind of physical presence can be totally exactly what not to do, you know, or, or a way to get fired <laughs> and stuff. So it's wild. It gets into like taste. And, um, you know, if you're auditioning for like an Ozzy Osbourne tour, like they probably want a physical drummer that like, you know, beats the shit out of drums. And I mean, that as a compliment, you know, yeah. 
like yeah. you know Dave Grohl with the Foo Fighters. I just love his presence, mm-hmm. man. And 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 when he played with Nirvana, and it was just like, damn, this is just kick ass, bad motherfucker. God, I love it, you know. And then yeah. by the same token, like going to see Jimmy Cobb play at the Blue Note is is also just equally inspiring, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so man, I, I try to to have. Uh, again, gets back to this sort of wide range and stuff and touch, you know, but when it comes to getting a, a big sound, that Tony Williams thing was a huge influence in the way he sort of approached everything with single strokes. And it was like all about getting sort of this big ass full sound out of the drums, you know. The Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series snares are amazing, and so are the artist drums. Designed by Russ Miller, the Versatus Maple Mahogany Hybrid Shell offers a naturally pre-processed sound with just the right amount of low-end articulation and punch. A single SAS ring on the batter side only, a unique bearing edge combination, and the ideal depth size proportion all contribute to the perfect balance of strength, functionality, feel, and beauty for all playing situations. This drum is available in both a 14 by 6.5 and a 14 by 4 and 5 eighths. To learn more about the Versatus and the rest of the entire Design Lab series, check out mapexdrums.com. So if you're looking to get a new kit, you have two options. One, you can check out some pictures online. You can go to the store. You can see what they have there. You can drive to another store. You can find a couple more models and you can drive yourself insane driving all over the place trying to see what the kit that you want looks like. Or you can design yourself the perfect sonar kit using their SQ2 drum configurator. And this configurator allows you to build a kit from scratch or you can use some of their predetermined configurations and then just modify them. But you can modify everything, the sizes, the configuration, the hardware, the color, all of that stuff. And you can make it to your exact specifications. Not only that, you can get an overhead view, you can get a 3D image of it. All of that is built into the drum configurator. To build your dream sonar kit, go to sq 2 drumsystem.com or just google sonar sq2 you'll find it check it out the sonar drum configurator like i said i've i've not only listened to your playing for years but i've watched you on saturday night live but i'd never seen you up close and personal like that like i did uh, when you were at that clinic and i couldn't i just couldn't understand how it literally looked like you were playing with clubs in your hands and you were just like, you know, like a caveman, like beating at the drums. And I mean that like in a good way, like you were saying, like beating the shit out of the drums. But the flip side of it, I was like, he has, there's like this finesse about it that feels like he's playing with seven A's and he's using like his two fingers to just tap on the drums. I was like, how, how, how is he getting this feel and sound like at the same time mixed together? It, It like completely blew my mind. Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting that that you bring that up because it does lean into the sort of those influences about like when you had to rock out and if you can't if you kind of came up in the 80s, you know, it was encouraged that you had a big physical presence behind the drums, right. you know. And yeah. and then but as eras change and stuff like that, man, it can be the worst thing to show up and be play like that. And so I think yeah. <laughs> you know, con- context is everything. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Uh the 
looking at looking at all the stuff that you've done playing live playing you know playing live on television but then also you know touring and then studio work for you how do you approach those differently how are you approaching maybe you know saturday night live versus a tour versus a session because and especially live and and studio they're complete two completely different worlds uh do you prepare for them the same way or do you prepare for them differently or what's your approach for both of those yeah you know the the prepare thing is so interesting especially like when it comes to this the the session thing like there's times where you know they might send demos out or something and uh it's really interesting. I remember doing something with Will Lee and a uh, great, you know, musician, obviously bass yeah. player. And, um, and I remember I had like, you know, spent all this time with what they sent us. And then he maybe didn't have as much time to dive into it. And then when we got on the session, the fact that he was sort of not as tied down to the baggage of having listened to everything is like intently, maybe as I took the time to do, you mm-hmm. know, actually was, a, was almost a benefit, you know, uh, in that context. And then there's other times where, man, if they, like, I remember when I was working with Shakira's thing, it was such a trip. Like really the gig was about, she needed to hear her demos note for note. So if you were sent a demo, it was, yeah, it was almost like you had to transcribe the thing. And once she heard that and that you gave that to her, then she was sort of open to whatever you might be, have to bring to the table. But, uh, you know, the, like a lot of drummers went in and out the door through that gig because it was just so trippy about what was going on. And, the, you know, the thing about, uh, you know, when you're working in a studio is sometimes they want a human drum machine to just basically give them what they're telling you they want. And then mm-hmm. other times they really you're getting hired for what you have to bring to the table, maybe. And if you have some ideas. and So it's really interesting. You know, records are made so many a million different ways. And uh, the flexibility thing through that is huge. You know, like I remember somebody said that maybe it was Springsteen that said, um, I hate, I hate somebody with a good idea. (laughs) It sounded so (laughs) counterintuitive, but like the point was, is that he wanted to, first of all, get his, his vision of the thing expressed before everybody started chiming in and being like, Hey man, so on the bridge, what if we do, what if we do this? You know, I remember I got to play on a couple tracks for him, and uh, one of them was uh, this ballad. It's on this tracks box set, um, and it's called Happy, and it's got it's a really straight ahead like kind of ballad thing. And he kept mm-hmm. hearing this cross, just a cross stick thing, like on two and four through the whole tune. And I was like, obviously, oh, to myself, I'm like, oh man, this you know, it's such a this seems like such a straight ahead pedestrian kind of drum part, and like I I had. Uh, Remo for a while were making those snare drums where they had the conga top, like a skin top that was like a conga head and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I had it kind of muffled down like an Al Green type, really warm sound. And I had this whole like combination thing where I had a Vader, uh, a Vader Blastic combined with one of the Blader, Vader uh, blue uh, broom things. So it had this really kind of feathered texture. And like, it was this really soulful beat that I was in love with. I was like, oh man, this is so cool. It's like this little heartbeat going through this thing. And then, and I kept trying to sort of like work back into introducing that. And he kept hearing like this is straight ahead cross stick. And it was like breaking my heart. I was kind of like, oh man, I really <laughs> want to do this creative part, you know, this thing. So anyway, so the record comes out and I remember hearing it and like the lyric is sort of about time passing and, and, uh, you know, just the cross stick, there was so much space that 
was left for everything else to happen around just the simple two and four thing. And, uh, and also with the lyric and anyway, mates, it was an interesting learning thing because I was so hell bent on trying to shoehorn like my concept of the thing, you know, and I mean, finally I realized I, I had to let go of this and get, you know, given what he wanted and it all worked out fine. And right. It wasn't some long drawn out thing, but in my mind, you know, it was like, oh, this is a great opportunity to try to do something really creative. And now I'm stuck playing this cross stick thing. <laughs> but anyway, but it all made sense in the end, you know, and when you can see things through someone else's eyes, that's a huge survival skill too. And you're not just seeing things through the, behind the drums, but like how, remember someone saying about Mickey Curry that they loved how much space was around what he laid down on a track because they could all of a sudden hear like, okay, it's a great finger picking acoustic, you know, rhythm guitar thing that can go here. And then, you know, as opposed to maybe a drum track that has a lot going on through it or subdivisions. And then, but Hey, you know, and there's other times where like grace notes and subdivisions are exactly what a track needs. So it's so hard to talk about these things in black and white or like one way or the other. It's like, the flexibility thing ends up being a huge thing. So I think I might have gotten derailed from your question, which was sort of about the preparing, you know, and No, but um, I think that that's good. I think that that's such an a good that's such an important thing to make and I've heard and I've heard Steve Gadd about this talk about the same thing. And I think that that's the mark of professional is I think the younger you are and the greener you are, you want to get in and you and you want to push your ideas and to the point where it's detrimental to the vibe or it's detrimental to the fact that they're like, man, we're hiring you to play a particular thing, not to come in here and push your push your agenda. And I think the mark of professional is to to be flexible and to to, you know, play the stuff. Sure. Put your ideas out there, but also, you know, play the things that they're that they're asking you to play. Yeah, I love that. You know, it reminds me like a, a memory reading an interview about Steve. And he was talking about using like maybe pinstripe heads in that era where that was sort of a thing and the deader sound. He goes, yeah, you know, he goes, you know, the engineers seemed to like it and I wanted to work with them and get something that they were cool with. And, um, you know, contrasted, let's say like, like I remember hearing stories about Stuart Copeland, who's obviously an icon and we all love, you know, both these cats, but like he would insist on like sort of cranking the drums up and open and, you know, and then he, he invented an iconic sound with that within the police, you know, but sort of really interesting, two different slants of like, uh, this is my sound and I'm doing this. And then the other side of the coin is being really flexible and open to maybe what other people need and want and are hearing right. and being able to, to fit into that kind of thing too. Yep. And then the magic about Steve is that his personality and, and groove and all that comes through whatever, you know, whatever he's sitting in and that, and that became a sound. But it's, it's interesting that thing about your own personality. And, you know, I remember talking to Jerry Murata about that once, cause, you know, he's so creative and so damn cool. And, and he had these, uh, these Dallas uh, Indian head drums, T-A-O-S, and they're like skinhead drums. And he had a whole drum kit made out of them. And it was just so badass and unique and cool. And then I remember I was recording with Cheryl Crow and she goes, Hey man, so last week Jerry was in and he had, he had this, this Indian kit, Indian head skit. He goes, you have something like that. And you know, and I was like, and, and at that time I used to bring in a ton of shit. Like I had percussion. I think I had one of their snares, but I didn't have a whole kit and, but you right. know, like all these options and shit, but I didn't have the Indian reservation drum kit, you know, and then, <laughs> um, and then the track ended up going in a different direction, but it pointed to like this idea of, of being super creative and bringing something to the table that can be left field. And then you, you know, having the opportunity for that to speak. And I remember 
talking to Jerry about it, he said, yeah, he goes, you know, but it's interesting with that, like, you almost have to be working with artists or in a situation that that could even be possible, you know, like somebody right. open to something super creative like that. You know, if you're doing, you know, let's say a Celine Dion record or something, they might not even, that might not be even the wheelhouse or, you know, like um, Britney Spears or whoever, like that, some kind of track that it just really needs to be this one slot of thing. Right. You don't, you're not going to have the opportunity to wheel out the uh, Indian reservation drum kit, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when you're going into a recording session and, and maybe there's not a ton of direction, just like, Hey, here's, you know, we've been sort of roughing this out here. Maybe here's a rough demo or something like that. What's your approach to developing your, the, the groove that's going to happen in that because you, you always hear just play what's right for the music and you when you talk to steve or, or you talk to anyone else it's like oh i just i just serve the music i do what's right for the music and th and this is a hard question to answer and i know it comes from experience but how do you know what's right for the music how do you start to craft that particular sound is it a is it a series of questions that you're asking or or can you just add some insight to to how you do that in the studio yeah. Well, the questions, you know, and asking, that's a really interesting juncture, like sort of right there. Like there's times where communicating and asking questions maybe, or it can be like the best thing to do. And man, there's other times where just shutting up and playing, like being almost a, the ability to produce yourself and like not ask a lot of questions and go in and play what maybe your first instincts are or what, like if you were producing yourself, what would you be doing? And, uh, you know, like that, that phrase, like a picture speaks a thousand words. Like sometimes for me to, like if I was going to say, hey, hey, I love this. I'm going to go in and do a, a James Brown kind of like, you know, breakbeat thing on this and, uh, and we'll see how it goes. Versus like maybe just shutting up and going in and playing your take on that approach. Because if someone hears like a James Brown breakbeat thing, they may, to them, it may have a completely different connotation than maybe what you're thinking. And they, then all of a sudden it sets up an expectation for something that maybe, you know, they, all of a sudden maybe they're hearing 16th on the hi-hat and you, you were hearing something that was more ghost note orientated. And, you know, it's like wild how words can get in the way. Mm -hmm. And then also being able to communicate can be like your ability to do that and do it sensitively can, can really keep getting you hired and i think it is a great survival skill to have that so man i don't know if that makes any sense but it does it does depending depending on the situation and who's in charge like there's times where you can tell that a producer wants to answer questions in front of the artist to show that he is an authority figure that knows what's going on and he's going to tell you exactly what he wants to hear out of the drums right and you know by saying say hey well so should we try the bla black beauty with this or do you hear something like uh you know, like a piccolo there, you know, like asking that gives him a chance to flex his muscle in front of the artist about what he's, you know, and that that's like a, can be a gold star in his thing. There's other right. times where I remember like working with Phil Ramon a lot um, and he would cast people, he, he would make records kind of in an old school way. He would put people together in a room and, you know, he could lead and direct and say positive shit, but he wouldn't get super specific. And sometimes if you asked him specific questions that would almost like put him on the spot and it was sort of like you know instinctively you realize maybe that's not the best thing to do in this situation like go in and mm -hmm. play your ass off 
And if something's wrong, believe me, you'll, you, they'll let you know. But so, ah, man, I don't know if that makes any sense. I remember talking to someone that, that had, you know, worked with Phil and they were like, well, you know, I didn't know what he wanted. And he, and he didn't seem to be able to tell me <laughs> either. And then I was kind of like, I, I just thought it through and I was like, oh man, you know, sort of missing the big picture of like, well, maybe he didn't really actually know what he wanted and he was waiting for it to sort of come together with the musicians that he had sort of cast to be there. And, you know, by bringing it up and asking what he wanted was probably an uncomfortable moment for him, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, it's interesting, you know, and, and another producer, they would have loved to be able to, to, to tell everybody what to do. So yeah. it's kind of a sensitivity thing. And, and reading the room and understanding people and the dynamics of all that, which is... And I have man, to imagine a there's part. a lot of... What's that? Oh, no, I was just going to say that's such a huge part of surviving in the studio, you know, is, is mm -hmm. having a kind of ra a radar for communicating, you know. Yeah. Or not. And, I, and I, I have to imagine you work with a lot of producers who may may not be able to tell you exactly what they want, but they can tell you what they don't want or they can hear something and say, no, that's not it you know, and let's move on to the next thing or something like that. And I think that's just as important to be able to express what you don't want. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's such an interesting era, you know, in different styles of people and how they make records as far as, you know, people that come up with machines, they're really used to like dialing in something that, that they really are in love with or think, and they just want someone to recreate that. And then other mm -hmm. times there's people that are maybe more band orientated that, you know, just want to get a vibe going with five people in a room and build off of that. So it's so amazing how broad of a range there is of how things are put together, you know, these days. Yeah. 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 Do you feel like there's, there's more of, there's more of that where people are coming in with programmed beats and, and saying, okay, can you just duplicate this? Yeah. There's a lot of that. I mean, if you were to listen to like, you know, the top, the hot 100, you know, it's amazing how much, you know, programmed elements were involved or like, you know, you could listen to a lot of songs. There's no live drums on the thing at all, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, then that, that leans into this idea of like, you know, Steve Wolf is a great example, like really great musician and, and has like the programming thing covered as well being a great player. And, you know, like, um, yeah. having these, these skills together and understanding like the history of like, you know, the MPC, Akai MPC range and, and hip hop and sampling and, you know, like that's been a big thing for me is to embrace like uh, Ableton and understand how that works and, you know, bringing that to the table. Like there was a time when, you know, mixing that up with live playing was like kind of a, a trend, you know, mm -hmm. the loop thing with the live playing and all that. So I think I remember Keltner saying in an interview that like, you know, if you play drums, if you can get it together to dive into those other tools you know, you all of a sudden might be the cat that's engineering someone's demo and that leads you to, just because you knew how to work GarageBand, let's say. And then that leads you to like where you're engineering a live gig, but they love the sound that you pulled together that now you're engineering the debut record. And all of a sudden it like, as a kid, you know, like, so you're not just the drummer anymore. You're like aware of other things that you can bring to the table because you know what, harking back to what you were saying, like at the beginning that surviving just as a drummer is really a difficult road but man if you if you're able to bring other things to the table mm -hmm. um and i remember reading kellner saying that you know and it, it really inspired me also to to realize how important it was as a survival skill you know yeah 
to, to have other tools together. And then by the same token, uh, I'll say knowing when that's appropriate and when it isn't. I remember working on a David Byrne record and uh, I had, I was diving in all this stuff and you know I, I thought it was so creative and, and man, well, I love David check Byrne, this out. So, <laughs> yeah. So I said, well, maybe we'll try this on the verse and then the live drums are coming in the chorus, you know, and then the thing was that the producer was sort of a hip hop based producer and that was sort of in his wheelhouse. So it's sort of like, you know, I may have been stepping outside of my lane, you know, like understanding the balance of like when people want to hear ideas from you and when it's better just to man, shut the fuck up right. and just play the drums, yeah. you know, cause that yeah. can be that can be the way that's best as opposed to being someone with all these creative ideas. And then someone else might be like, Oh man, we got to get this cat because he has all these great ideas and you know, so again, it's amazing how many different ways the ball can bounce, you know? Yeah. I mean that, that yeah. all comes back to what you were saying, like be flexible, you know, know when yeah. to, what, know when to play and know when to, or, you know, know when to interject and know when to, like you said, shut the fuck up and play the drums. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. 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 <laughs> Ow. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's so many things that, that I want to keep talking to you about, but I know that, you know, we've been doing, we've been already talking for a while. I mean, there's the the stuff that you've done with uh, live from Daryl's house, which is like one of my favorite series, uh, all the stuff that, I mean, you've played with so many great artists on there and records, the, the citizen cope record that you played on the Clarence Greenwood recordings uh, is, is a really favorite record of mine. Um, but if, if you were to leave, a record behind, you know, like they can say, okay, Sean, you can leave one or two records behind for, for a demonstration of, of your work. Is there a record or two that you would choose to leave behind or a live recording or, or something in your entire, entire catalog of stuff that you've played on? Oh man. Well, I am, I mean, I am proud of some of those, the singer songwriter things that, you know, ended up crossing over in some ways and uh, made a lot of records with John Leventhal that, you know, he kind of has a really cool organic approach and way he hears drums. There's some Peter Wolf records that I did that I'm in love with that, uh, the Peter Wolf from the Jake Giles band, like his solo records. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, like, like there's one, it's a track with Keith Richards and, and, uh, you know, you, you hear Peter and Keith say my name before the track starts. I'm like playing a washboard with a kit and it's like got this kind of wigged out, you know, there's some moments from those records that I'm in love with. Um, and it was also like a creative time where, you know, maybe there's a mallet with a shaker in it. And in the right hand is a, you know, a lot of Keltner influences through stuff like that, that um, were on those records that I loved. Um, but man, there's such a wide range of stuff. And I, I just feel so lucky, like I said, to have be on a record that Ray Charles is on or that Bob Dylan, you know, just it's such a, thrilled to have grown up in a little town in Missouri and then all of a sudden, you know, so, yeah. so man, yeah, I don't, I don't know what, if I could put a cap on it. Cause I feel like it's just such a wide range of shit out there that I've had to do to survive. And I just feel like it's been all uh, a dream, you know? Yeah. Is there an artist yeah. that you, that you haven't played with that, that is sort of on your bucket list or, or maybe someone that's passed away that you'd wanted to play with? Um, Man, I kind of, I guess I don't really think that way. Like I was just, when you said that, I was thinking about Van Morrison because I, I love him so much. And then he's on that Ray Charles track. It's a, it's him and Ray together. Mm. Um, so, but I, you know, I love soulful music and I love what Ellington said about, you know, 
um, the kind of music doesn't really, there's good music and there's sort of bad music regardless of style, you know? So, right. um, like I, you know, I love Billy Higgins as much as I love like Merle Haggard, you know, let's say. And, uh, so I feel really kind of open to, to everything. Uh, yeah. and I, I guess I don't really think of it as in a favorite, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. The, I was, <laughs> and I'm looking back and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but have you, have you played with Steely Dan? You know, uh, I have not recorded with them, but they're, they were part of this love rocks thing. Um, uh, mm -hmm. and, um, so one year, um, we played and we did, we did Asia and then I didn't want to even be near a drum set when Steve was going to do that, you know, but Steve <laughs> made me actually play, play the first part. And then, but I was like, man, I am not going to mess with this once it, you know, and we also did, I think, I can't remember if we did peg or we did or reeling in the years or something. And I got to do that with Steve together. Uh, nice. So that was a blast. But man, Keith Carlock with uh, with them now. I mean, he's he's such a great voice on the instrument. I just what an inspiration. I just love his playing and his sound and has a you know really unique take on things. Just really inspiring, man, to hear him. You know. Yeah. I mean, if if I'm if Steve Gad walks into the room, I'm I don't I'm like I'm not even a drummer. I just you know I'm like I don't want no well I don't want I I want no. Uh, no competition here at all. We're not even going to talk about me playing drums. I'm just going to say I'm a guy who likes music or something. Um, well, so, well, no, it's interesting that you say it because I, you know, having to work with him or getting the opportunity to work with him, like this will be the fifth year we're getting ready to go back in again. Like it's so rare for a drummer to get to double drum with somebody. Uh, and then for someone to be like a master of all time, you know, yeah. and I've learned so much just being, he's one of those guys you learn so much just being in his air in airspace with him, you know, like, um, uh, he, the way he balances the kit, you know, the, the relation like of, of the volume levels when he plays, uh, how like his, where his bass drum places in all of that, his mm -hmm. cross stick sound, like his cross stick sound is so beautiful and consistent but he's just so soulful, like beyond like all the, the things that, you know, can blow the roof off. He's just such a soulful musician. We were doing this, uh, I don't know if it was Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, but last year it was Sarah Bareilles and, and Yola. And there was this uh, doing this ballad, you know, and man, sometimes we do fills together and we talk about how we're going to approach stuff and just playing a ballad with him and how soulful his approach is and the way he like sort of, you know, you were talking about laying into the toms and getting a big sound and then how deep the pocket is and the sort of physical commitment, but still all the fluidity and just so musical. And, oh man, I just, I, you know, it brings tears to your eyes. I'm sitting there playing yeah. and we're going, or, you know, these fills are like, there were times we, we did, Robert Plant was on the bill one of the years and we were doing a whole lot of love and maybe out of the breakdown, there's that, that machine gun 16th note thing on the snare drum, you know, da, 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 da. And yeah. we, He's like, man, let's do these things together because there's so much power when we both just nail the shit out of us. Like, yeah, man, it's so exciting, you know. And then you're there and you're committing to this thing together. And then he's right, and you're looking at him like, oh my god, I can't believe this. I'm doing this with Steve, yeah, <laughs> you know. And uh, so, man, it's been an incredible learning experience being around him. And and he's also really positive about, you know, working together and it's not like it's not like you know i'm i'm king steve and and everybody's you know like it's just so he's so open and like encourages yeah. everybody to be anyway man i can't say enough about about it you know I, and i i mean i've had limited uh 
experiences with Steve, had him on the podcast and, you know, met him a few times in some social settings. But to, I mean, and you, you can speak to this a lot more than I can, but when I was saying when I'm in the same room as him, I don't, you know, I don't want there to be competition. I probably, I said that wrong because he, he's Steve Gad, but he doesn't walk in the room and, and give off this vibe. Like I'm the best drummer in the, it's not like that at all. He's like the kindest, most down to earth, sweetest person you could ever possibly meet, you know? And, and I've never gotten a sense of him like you know feeling the need to like let you know how great of a drummer he is no, absolutely you're absolutely right man he's he's all about and it's the big picture about what's best for the music and what's best for the the thing in there like i remember we're, we sit up side by side and these last couple of years he sort of adjusted his drum kit where he took away two of the toms so he sort of just plays like a ringo kit and he puts the music stand over by the floor tom so that we can have eye contact. And, uh, you know, he doesn't have to do any of that kind of shit, man. And he's and it's all about because he, he knows it's best for the music and the big picture of the whole thing. And, uh, man, really giving Cat and yeah, everything you said was right on. Yes, yes. Yeah, he's just, I mean, he's Steve Gadd. <laughs> what else? Yeah. What else needs to be said? He's everything that you would expect him to be and more, you know? Yeah amen amen it's, it's amazing and you and so you're playing you're doing a double drums thing with him for love rocks nyc right that's a it's a um it's a benefit concert yeah it's sort of this kind of big multi-artist show and um this would be the fifth year and we do it at the beacon and uh you know like uh robert plant you know uh billy gibbons from zz top uh steve um um uh, I mean, I, there's so many artists. Like Hart kind of showed up and played before they went out on the road with that reunion uh, thing. Um, Grace Potter, um, but that uh, Jackson Brown, uh, Mavis nice. Staples is coming back this year. Uh, Hozier did it, um, and um, so you know, it's 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 pretty incredible to line up and you know to get to play with Robert Plant and all these different people in that yeah. context. It's just been been you know, a, a thrill. Um, I also do the songwriters hall of fame and that's another example of like just starstruck, you know, like you playing with Stevie wonder and then all of a sudden, um, you know, McCartney did it one year. And, um, uh, so, you know, those kind of situations, I remember I subbed for Anton once on the rock and roll hall of fame and, um, uh, the Hollies were inducted and a bunch of other people. And, um, so it's it's wild those situations. You really like got about thirty seconds to make a, an impression that you have your shit together. You know, as far as like, um, you know, a great feel and a sound, and you understand kind of like the typical thing. I remember once at the Songwriters Hall of Fame, we we played with Aerosmith, and um, you know, Steven Tyler is sort of notorious for, uh, you know, he's a drummer himself, and he's he's particular about what happens with the drums, and uh, mm-hmm. so you know, we were we were given a recording of the thing and it was kind of like with the tools out there though, it's sort of like we were given the original recording, but it's like, well, man, how are they doing this live? Are they doing it faster or slower? And then is it consistently at the same tempo over the last sort of the way they've been doing it? Or is it different every night? And, you know, trying to dial in what they're used to. And I remember one, the Stevie wonder one, like we, I don't know if it was my Sharia Moore or something, but they, um, they gave us the original record. No, they gave us the recording of it, how he did it live with his band like five years ago. And it was sort of more muscular and kind of contemporary. And then I think on the original, so 
we're rehearsing with Stevie. He goes, drummer. He goes, what's your name? I said, Sean. He goes, hey, Sean. So listen, I want you to pick up a brush with your right hand and it's, and then your left hand do a cross stick. And this is the beat. You know, and he's saying, he's saying the pattern, you know. And <laughs> so, you know, luckily I had checked out the, all the original recordings in case it got into a thing like that. But it, it's just uh, interesting, like these multi-artist things where they'll come in and they have about like 20 minutes, 20 or 30 minutes with the band to, to get comfortable and rehearse their right. tune. So you definitely have to kind of know what's happening and come, you know, like you said, you have about 20 seconds to make an impression as a drummer, you know? Well, and that's the thing I was thinking too. Like you have 20 different artists coming in and one person may want you to have this like laid back sort of group, you know, feel or whatever. And then the next person may want you to push and be loud and obnoxious. And the next person wants this. It's like, that's gotta be a lot on you to try to keep, to, to not only keep track of that stuff, but sort of be a chameleon through all of these different artists to make sure you're delivering what they want uh, on these shows. Man, yeah, you, you just nailed it. I mean, that really leans into exactly what is happening. And so then it's like, you know, for this show coming up, like we just got a track with Hogier where it's a, it's a live version, but it's also a studio version. And then mm -hmm. like there's some programmed elements and then, you know, coming up with a way of approaching it that for both drums and like are we going to play together when the live drums come in or is it just going to be one drummer like diff different approaches with that but you're right like are they used to doing this like say if you only get the record version are they used to actually doing this you know 10 beats faster and like at a show like you know live live kind of hyped energy type take or do they actually do it sort of unplugged now and the drums don't come until the bridge like it, you know, and then that gets into just how much preparation you're willing to do, you know, and t invest in time. Uh, but man, it sure pays off to have that together because if they turn it around and go, like we were saying earlier, the drums can be a hot seat. And if something just doesn't feel right, and maybe an artist just turns around and is like, well, I don't know, shit, this is not what I'm used to, or this, you know, because they're used to hitting these songs with their own band. And then they come into mm -hmm. a situation where it's not their guys. They, want to come across and have their shit together and look good in front of this band. And um, so the more you can sort of dive into what they're used to and how it's been done, but it's pretty, it's pretty cool to have covered all those bases so that if shit comes up, like, like if they turn around, go, I don't know, something just doesn't feel right. Then you can say, Oh yeah, shit. Well, maybe they mean it feels a little bit slow because live they do it quite a bit faster or, you know, maybe vice versa or that kind of shit. So Anyway, yep. it, that really is a trip. What you're talking about? Yeah. Well, that's why that's why you're there, and I'm not because that is uh, that is <laughs> that seems like a lot to uh, to to maneuver and and to navigate. So uh, that's why you're there, and I'm not. Um, but man, I I like I said, I could sit here, I could talk to you for for hours on end, and and I you know the invitation is always there to come back. I would love to have you back on uh, if you're willing to come back on. Uh, but I don't want to, I want to be conscious of your time, not take too much of it, especially on a weekend. So, uh, Sean, thank you so much for, for coming on. I've been wanting to get you on for, for a long time. So I'm glad that we, that we finally made this happen. I appreciate your time. Uh, I appreciate your, your insights and your wisdom and, and your humility and your willingness to just come on and just open up the book and, and share everything with us. So I, I truly appreciate it. Oh, Nick, man, I really appreciate you having me and, uh, you know, honored to be here. Like the, the library of stuff that you've pulled together in these interviews. I mean, it's like, 
they need to put it in the NASA space capsule and stuff. <laughs> you know, save save it forever because man, you've really got it's just really a gift to the drumming community. So you know, man, don't stop, don't stop, don't stop. I don't I don't plan on it, and it's only possible because people like you are willing to come on and and talk. So I I appreciate it. Wouldn't be it wouldn't be possible. No one wants to come on here and listen to me ramble. So having legends like yourself come on and and talk that's what keeps this podcast going so thank you yeah no thank you cool appreciate it i will talk to you soon all right man all the best talk to you soon there you have it the legend sean pelton you can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 652 also if you haven't already please leave a rating leave a review you can do that on itunes it takes about a minute and that's good for the show lets people know that they should be listening to this and also share it with your friends i mean 650 some episodes i'm sure that there's stuff in there that uh that your friends will love as well so other than that that's all i got so until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so much for listening and i'll be talking to you soon peace Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.